Hi folks, Jack Spirico here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial free versions of past episodes. Podcasts blast from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today we're rewinding back to November 26, 2019, right about three years ago. Uh, today's episode was originally episode 2917, Sustain- Sustainable Civilization Lessons from Poverty Point, Louisiana. Now, Poverty Point is what the place is called. It's, it wasn't that when it was this uh, sustainable civilization that was part of ancient America. It was built about 3,500 years ago and was at its peak about 3,000 years ago, about 900 acres in size and supported between 4,000 and 5,000 inhabitants. That's all I'll say about that for now because we'll cover all this as we go through the episode today. But this was part of a journey I took. I took a course uh, from a place called The Great Courses by a really cool college professor uh, on ancient North American civilization. And of all the lessons, the one that covered this was the most fascinating to me for a variety of reasons that we'll get into as we, as we drop into the rewind. But I'll, I'll be honest with you. Uh, choosing this one as the final one for the rewind series was kind of self-interest. Uh, if you if you haven't seen it yet, we did a live stream all the presentations, and one of the presentations that was given at the workshop this time was by me, and it was about the diet of early Americans. And there's there's something that gets said in that presentation multiple times, uh, and it is, and then something terrible happened. And there's times we're pretty sure what the terrible thing is, and there's times that we really don't know. And, and there's times that we're, well, it seems terrible. Is it terrible? We don't know. We just know that it all went away. So this civilization existed for a thousand years. A thousand years. And it was a civilization that was very egalitarian. Uh, where a lot of the civilizations, for all the, the, the romanticism about the noble Native Americans and all that, especially pre colonization, very hierarchical, very much monarchical city, monarchies for cities. They had slavery. Uh, they had all the ills of society. That wasn't just something that happened in Central America. It happened right here in North America, too. This place, from what's left and what can be analyzed, there's literally no evidence of this. There's no evidence of broad-scale agriculture at all. There's probably horticulture. That many people live together. There's some horticulture going on. Um, and it fits well with trying to figure out, well, exactly how did people live on this continent? How long were people on this continent for? In my presentation, I show some evidence that shows we could have had people on the North American continent going back to 120 to 130,000 years ago, long before conventional wisdom says anybody's been here. I also show that you know, when the last ice age and how drastically the coastlines changed. And you have to think about the fact that most civilizations like this one were adjacent to major water. And that would be the coastlines and the rivers, etc. And when you get a couple hundred feet of coastline just disappear, you get some civilization disappearing too. But as, as I 
put together the presentation for this workshop that we just finished up as you're listening to this, I discovered that this idea that a place would exist and would thrive and outlast nations in duration. I mean, the United States is heading for its 250th birthday not that long into the future. Uh, 1976 was the bicentennial, right? So we're heading for our 250th birthday as a country. This place lasted a thousand years, and then no real evidence as to why. It just ceased. Like everybody just went away. And I found that to be a common theme over and over again that these things would coalesce and these thriving civilizations would happen, and then poof. And again, sometimes we know, and sometimes we don't know. But what what I found to be pretty clear is that civilizations peaked and fell. And in most instances, there's pretty much evidence that they became ag- agricultural civilizations. They begin to depend on annual crops. They wear out. They wear out the land, and then they create other problems for themselves. We we, we often hear about how you know when the Europeans came here, they brought diseases, but there were a lot of diseases already here. And when people live in close proximity, eventually those things can lead to problems, as we know. And we really don't know, but we know that over and over and over again, something terrible happened. And life as it was known ceased, but it didn't end. Civilizations fell apart and recoalesced somewhere else. And it's I think it's a very sobering lesson to look through history and see that this has happened all throughout the world. And I think what happened when we looked at the North Americans and North American Native Americans and the last something terrible, we know what it was. It was us. And we know when it was in its recorded history. And because of that, we have this false image in our minds of what things were like here before us. And the truth is, before us, they weren't really that much different. Men fought wars over land and control of resources. Men enslaved other men for their own attainment and goals. And in some places like Poverty Point that you're about to hear about, life was pretty good. In other places, it was pretty bad. But in both instances, that which was one at one point thriving stopped. And there's some humility in that. There's some humility in that. Even when they get it really, really right, sooner or later, something terrible happened. And if we think about that as preppers, as survivalists, as homesteaders, as permaculturists, it gives us a bit of humility and hopefully an impetus to be a little bit better at all the things that we do. With that, let's go ahead and rewind back to... uh, Episode 2917, Sustainable Civilization Lessons from Poverty Point, Louisiana. First aired November 26, 2019. I will be back with you tomorrow, folks, and uh, we'll have a brand new episode. Uh, it's been a long, 
It's been a long haul getting this Rewind series done. I can't wait to be back with you in a real-time show. All right, guys, so let's get into the uh, the main topic of today's show, which, again, is we're going to be talking about this place called Poverty Point, Louisiana, and how the lessons from the archaeology around that point would lead us to how we might be able to build a sustainable civilization today. And I want to clear the air with something there with that word sustainable. There's a lot of people in, like, permaculture, regen ag, et cetera, we've, we've kind of like eschewed the concept of sustainable. Paul Wheaton calls sustainable barely surviving. I don't want to corrupt that word, and I don't think we should. Sustainable means we can continue to exist. If we do that in a regenerative fashion, it's still sustainable, if that makes sense. So that's where I'm coming from today. We're not talking about sustainability as being able to mine our way forward, because the United States, you, you have to call sustainable. We've been around over 200 years. We've sustained that long. So when I say sustainable, I'm talking about continuously sustainable. Uh, or at least something that could be a millennial civilization. We, we give the millennials a lot of shit, but I'm talking about um, being able to last a thousand years. Because the place I'm about to tell you about absolutely lasted a thousand years. Again, it's called Poverty Point. And it was originally built about 3,500 years ago. And it had its height, from what we can tell from the archaeological evidence, at about 3,000 years ago. And overall, it lasted a 1,000 years. More impressively, um, this place was about 900 acres in size. So it's fairly large, but I mean, if you think about 900 acres, there's plenty of individuals that own 900 acres today, right? 900 acres. But... The population was estimated to be around 5,000 people who appeared to be able to live quite well. They have very little to no evidence that there was a lot of warfare, but I do think the position was highly defensible, and we'll get to that in a moment. They had art. They had leisure. They had what appears to be spe specifically plenty of free time to do things, to think to organize, to plan, and yet when something needed to be done quickly, they could get it done very, very quickly. It is the site of one of the oldest pyramids in the world. We think of pyramids, we think of stacking rocks, right? We think of the ancient pyramids of Egypt or something like that. Many pyramidal structures were built more from earth, and they built a flat-topped earthen mound pyramid that is one of the oldest pyramids known, anyway, on planet Earth. And they built it, get this, in about 90 days. It's something like, and they know the baskets that were used to bring the dirt because the way this thing was built, eventually a basket would wear out and they would just throw it in there and they would pack it in. And they built it in multiple layers. They built it in multiple layers so it was hard packed on the top with different soil types. And the way they know that it was done in only 90 days' time is they know, like, how much rainfall was there on average in, in that area of Louisiana at the time. And there's very little evidence of erosion due to rainfall. So it couldn't have been a multi-year event because you can actually see the different layers knitted together as these 15 million baskets of earth were deposited. And unlike a lot of these other ancient civilizations where... We have this evidence of extensive hierarchy that these mounds had palace-like 
buildings on top of them, and you had like a big mound, and the king or the super chief lived up there, and you had these lower mounds that like elitists lived, and you had this egalitarian society, but this very narrow defined, you know, top level. It doesn't look like this was really used for a chieftain or a king. That it was more of a communal thing. And almost all the housing appears to be very, very similar. So you got four or five thousand people living together with little evidence of any conflict, no evidence of any agriculture, and no evidence of a strict hierarchy. It sounds pretty interesting to me. And that's why I wanted to talk about it to, you, to talk about it with you guys today. And I want to go over using this place and, and accepting right out of the gate. I do not know what life was like at this place any more than we can infer from what is left behind in artifacts, archaeology, and site surveys. We're, we're doing a thought experiment here. I am also extrapolating, if they could do these things then, what could we do now? And make sure that you don't blur that line too much. We're, I'm talking about what we could do today, and you're thinking I'm saying it's what they did back then. Because we have technology they didn't have. We have technology. We could do the earthworks they did much e more, more easily because we have things like excavators, right? So let's just try to keep that in mind as I go through this. So what I want to start out with is we do know what they ate. And we know what they ate primarily because of the things that can endure for 3,000 years that were left behind and the absence of things that we find at other locations when agriculture was going on. We don't like we have plenty of stone tools that came from this place. We have tons of literally tons of stone tools that were left behind at this place, including a lot of weights that were clearly used for things like nets for fishing. We have evidence of a lot of game that was consumed, including deer and things you would expect, but a lot of uh, amphibians and, and reptiles. I think this is Louisiana on the bayou, right? Fish. Big mounds that were, you know, inside at least, were massive uh, mounds of shells from shellfish. So we know that the, the primary calories that these people consumed came from protein, came from animal meats. And many of them were also high in fats. We think of game as being very lean, but when you start including a lot of shellfish in your diet, you're eating a lot of fat. So the health of these people was, based on what we know about modern diet, was probably a hell of a lot better than the average person's today. And we know that they were able to then feed themselves. There's no evidence of, like, stone tools that would be used for agriculture. There's nothing that would be like a plow or a hoe or a harrow. There's no evidence that these guys did anything that we could think of as, as modern agriculture. Which, again, we're, we're told by archaeology, mainstream archaeology, that civilization and agriculture must go together. If you do not have agriculture, you do not have civilization. Call me nuts, but I think 4,000 people living together on 900 acres qualifies as a civilization. And doing so in a manner that endured for a 1,000 years qualifies as a pretty damn sustainable civilization. And they were able to do this primarily living as hunter-gatherers, which are supposed to move around, but they didn't. And they did disappear after a thousand years. We don't know why. We probably never will know why. But you can't discount the achievement 
There, there's plenty of civilizations that were built on agriculture that were quite advanced that we do know of that rose and fell in less than a thousand years. It would be one of the more successful civilizations we can examine in history. It doesn't look like there was a lot of animal husbandry either. There is no evidence for it. That doesn't mean it didn't exist. I, I, there's a saying that this guy that teaches this course really likes to use, and that is the absence of evidence is not the evidence, evidence of absence. But there's, there's no evidence of corrals. There's no, like one of the ways they know the houses, the footprint of the houses, there's evidence of the post holes that these houses were built on top of these mounds on. So these mounds were in an area where they basically leveled the main area of, 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 the, uh, of the town. They went flat level with it. They then capped it and packed it with clay so that it would not erode. And then they built these mounds that you can see in the thumbnail image or you can look up what Poverty Point looked like in Google Images. And you see these mounds. And again, it looks, it looks a lot like New Forest Farm, Mark Shepard's farm, except, again, those are not trees. And those mounds are big mounds lifted up from that level area, leveled off and wide enough that there's houses built house by house, side by side, on these concentric circles, viewing into like uh, a, a common plaza. And to me, that's, that's amazing. Now, I can see how there would be potential for animal husbandry to exist here. But you would then expect to find some evidence, some remnant of some sort of caging or corralling, some post holes that created some sort of walled structure. That does not appear to be present. And if you think about it, if you are able to obtain enough of your animal product from hunting and fishing, why would you go through the crap of maintaining animal husbandry? One of the reasons we keep animals as homesteaders is because we don't have thousands of acres of open land that we can go hunt and gather on. If we did, and if I could go out anytime I wanted to and shoot a deer, why would I deal with the pain in the ass that a goat is? Not to mention they didn't have goats available to them. It, it's, it's, it's very interesting to me that they were able to live this way, and, and clearly by the archaeological record, very, very successfully living on animal product and, and basically tree mast. There is significant evidence of the use of things like acorns and hickory and pecan. So they were gathering the mast of trees. And that we know. We absolutely know. And this is where I go into, I am speculating here. When I look at the layout of this facility, when I look at everything about it, and when I think of what we know of ancient Native American forestry practices... It is evident to me that we didn't have slash and burn going on where this place was leveled because then there would be evidence of the clay being baked under the heat of the burns. And if that does exist, I cannot find any documentation of it. So again, absence of evidence, not the evidence of absence. But it seems to me as extensively as this has been researched and the guy that teaches the course, as good as he is, if that was there, he would have said, hey, look, we have this too. But this guy is down to the minute detail. I'm like... 75% through this course, and I am completely blown away by how amazing this guy's level of detail is. So I still look at this and I say, and I need to go to this place. But when I look at the, the scale of this and I see that berm, 
And I think, okay, this berm came up, it was leveled flat, and a freaking house, thousands of houses or hundreds of houses sat on these berms, spaced out so that they were not wall-to-wall. -wall. They weren't built like apartments like the Pueblos did in, in the stone or in Dalmawaddle. And people lived in them. And even if they're relatively small, if they're 12 by 12 structures or something like that, the scale is enormous. And there's absolutely no reason at all, none, that we couldn't have had trees growing in between the berms at this settlement. And if you did that, you would reduce the need to maintain the open space a great deal because shade results in less undergrowth, right? And if there was no slash and burn going on here, and there was no grazing of wildlife, and if this place was maintained in an open courtyard manner in a significant amount of acreage, that's a lot of human labor if you don't employ some technique to reduce the need for that. I guess you also have a lot of people that could be doing that at any time. Um, but I think there was extensive horticulture going on in these societies, and we know that in even modern indigenous societies that live far more primitive than this, that, for instance, the, the, uh, the natives of the Amazon basin practiced massive horticulture, but if you walked through the jungle down there, you'd not recognize any of it as being maintained by man. We know that there was horticulture going on in the, uh, the desert southwest parts of California, etc., with things like maintaining manzanito uh, and other plants, and we know that. And we have like the, 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 the remnants of those people still around that can say, this is the story, this is the lineage. And I want to say something about the storytelling of these people as well that people don't understand. We think of as our written language is so much more reliable than the spoken word because once it's written, it's written. But in many of these societies throughout history, storytelling was a sacred trust and that a person would become familiar with the story and then memorize the story and an elder would make sure that they knew every single detail of the story verbatim and could tell the story the same way every time before they would be trusted as the keeper of that story. So we, do, we need to have respect for these stories. And then when we can go look and find evidence that corroborates them, we need to have respect for that. Because otherwise we're writing off things that we should be using to figure out how we got where we are as a people. And so we know that horticulture is part of this type of lifestyle. And it doesn't always mean people are constantly roaming around. People go out and they hunt, but they come back to the village. In this case, they come back to what you can only call a city. I'm sorry, I call 5,000 people living together communally this way a small city. And that's what this was. Um, there was also the fact that one of the great assets these people had, and you'll see most of these civilizations did the same thing. They were built on flowing waterways. They call it a bayou in Louisiana. We call it a, It's a small river that this was built on. And the entire one side of this location was a flowing river, which allowed trade, which allowed fish, and which allowed an endless supply of water. Nobody was going to die of thirst at this location. And if they did want to do any sort of horticulture, the water was there. But if you look at the actual site, it was significantly down bank. And they did not have, in any way that we can say, the technology to lift that water other than some sort of manual way at a time when there was very limited pottery. 
So it was probably not the case they were doing any sort of irrigation. But if you think of the rainfall of the location and the structure, and you're, if you're growing mast crops, if you're growing berries and nuts and native plants, you're not going to need any. So I, I don't think we can rule out horticulture, and it seems to have been done so. So I think that would be, if we're trying to learn how to be sustainable, if we're learning, if we want to know how we would build a community, I think we're on to something when we start looking at, well, what's required that we can provide our water and at least our basic nutritional requirements and our housing without the need of anything on the outside. But they did not do that completely. They did not only work on the outside. Um, there was also extensive use of contour-based earthworks, which I've talked about already, but I, I don't think we should just kind of look at that as like some sort of odd curiosity, right? Um, you, you have this incredibly well-designed contour-based mound system that serves for housing. And think about a bunch of things that this would do. You have a bayou. They were there a thousand years. So do it like back of the napkin, like inside your head, math. How many hundred-year floods do you get over a thousand years? Say about ten, right? I mean, that just that just makes sense. We could we get about ten thousand year or hundred-year flood events. And so you're now down in this kind of valley. The the waterway is below you, but there's extensive opportunity for flooding to happen in there. So you get a flood now. Okay, the houses are lifted up. They're on stilts without stilts. The mound's not going away. The mound is hard packed and it's on contour. What happens when the floodwaters come through? They do almost no erosion. This was highly engineered. And for a purpose that I'm not even sure that... I, I've heard nothing in any of the investigation I've done into the archaeology that anybody's even thinking this way about this. They built an erosion-proof, flood-proof housing complex 3,500 freaking years ago and they did it with 100% on-site materials so there was a lot of training going on but the stuff they built, the infrastructure they built they went to a place and they built it with what they had so there wasn't from what we can tell a currency though I'll get into something that may have been at the time but we, it doesn't look like these people were like paid laborers or something like that, it was like we all need to live here, let's build this thing And, and they did. And that contour-based earthwork system would have also, every time it rains, that water was going to come hit those roofs, fall off those roofs. They didn't have gutters and stuff like that. The water just sheeted off the roofs. And then it landed in between the berms, which would spread the water out and infiltrate it, doing almost no erosion, But if you were growing trees there, and there'd be literally almost no evidence of those trees, then I think they would pretty much live no matter, in, in, in all but the worst of droughts, especially in a place where the water table was probably within a reach once the trees were mature anyway. So it just seems like there's a lot more to this location that people seem to be looking at. Um, there appears to have been ample room for mass-bearing trees, like I said. And, and there's no real evidence reported, but that doesn't mean it's not there. The people seem to have dealt in precious stones. And they did have extensive external commerce. There's something really interesting. There's several different mounds. There's the one big, huge mound that's the most impressive one. There's several smaller mounds. Most of them exist on a perfect 
line, a, a, a astronomically oriented line, north-south, um, which shows a lot of astronomy. But there's one that's built right down by the river. It's relatively small. It was only a, you know four or five foot tall above grade, up on the bank above the bayou, the river. And there was a small dwell there was like a small building on top of this. And trash, somebody mentioned trash. And trash is one of the most valuable things archaeologists can find. Archaeologists love where things were disposed of or left behind. The trash at this location are little flecks of precious stones. You have a building that was apparently fabricating jewelry with precious stones sitting right on this river, which is your main trade line north and south out of this place. To me, that sounds almost like a currency exchange of some sort. And maybe it's not. Uh, you know, Again, you're, you're kind of guessing here. But it's definitely the case that this was something that was of value to others, being produced and being strategically located for exchange with others. So if not a currency exchange, it's a trade exchange of some sort. So it's possible that maybe these precious stones were used as some sort of means of currency, or if nothing else, they were kind of maybe the anchor value that these people had to offer in the trade that went on, because the trade that we'll get into in a minute was extensive. And I think there's a lesson in that, that we need trade. We don't need to be isolated communities if we're going to be sustainable on your 900 or 9,000 or 9 acres or, or 9 tenths of an acre. You can only do so much. And if you want joy and beauty and things beyond what you can produce, you need some way to trade with others. And that, to me, doesn't seem to need much support that this was a primary means by which they obtained all these other materials that we know are not from their location, and we know where they came from. There's not a huge amount, but there's some copper tooling found there. And copper, we can actually look at the type of copper, the kind of signature of the copper, and say this copper was mined over here. And we know that. And we know the materials came as far as a thousand miles in and out of this facility, of this place, Poverty Point. And there, there has to be this kind of external commerce, I think. The next thing that I, I thought was really interesting was just how egalitarian the society was. Again, I mentioned this earlier, but we have other examples of cities, some far larger, though later in period, in North America, of these cities, these, these Native American cities, They're far more like what you think of if you know of the Aztecs, the Incas, etc. They're far more, there's a chief, there's a leader, there's human sacrifices, there's, there's all kinds of horrible shit that goes along with it. And you have these, these elevated mounds where like the leader lives, all hail the leader, right? And then you have your, your secondary elite class, and then you have your plebes. It just doesn't seem to be the point here. By maintaining something that was far more egalitarian without having class warfare, I think that's part of why you had a society that was able to last at least a thousand years without destroying each other. And I don't know how you do that today. We all have our own space that we want. They had their own space, but it was far more communal. But I think creating a place where people are left to themselves yet work together, that that is a cat that we can skin in 2021. And if we can't, then we're doomed. 
And we, we don't have to mirror what they did to learn from what they did and what worked with it. But they were definitely one of the most egalitarian societies that we have any archaeological record of. And that term, I've learned, gets thrown around in archaeology about these societies very easily. You know, there's, there's a, lot, a lot of discipline in doing it. And they're calling a society egalitarian because, well, 99% of the people live the same way, or 98%, or 95%, or 94%. This looks like a society where almost everybody lived the same way. The, the engineer, the artist, the hunter, the chief, everybody seems to have lived in a very egalitarian way. There is no evidence of a high social structure as far as authoritarianism. And I think we can learn from that. That also shows that this worked. We can't say, you know, the anarchist in me wants to say, here's your anarchy. On some levels it is an anarchy because there was no central government outside of it controlling it. There's no evidence of that. But I can't call this an anarchy. What I can call it is a self-directed society, which to me is an anarchy, but many people mean different things when they say that word, so I don't want to pollute this with that. And it's very clear that there were specialists. If you look at the layout of this community, if you look at the way this place was designed, you have to have engineering knowledge. There's no other word for it. And you have to have fairly sophisticated engineering knowledge to be like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to make this giant, like, you know, 30 acres, 40 acres, 50 acres, whatever it is, plaza level. We're going to use human labor, we're going to level this. We're going to bring in clay and we're going to pack it like a, con like, like, like a parking lot. And then we're going to put in these, these, these curved berms that are going to be perfectly curved and perfectly spaced. And we're going to compact them. And then we're going to equidistance place housing on. You don't do that without engineering. You don't build a dirt mound, even a dirt mound. I know it doesn't, but you got to see it as it was before erosion took the sides off it in a pyramidal flat top structure. And the base of this thing, to get it in your head, eight football fields at the base. And you build that in 90 days without engineering knowledge. It's not like you just get a bunch of clowns together and start dumping dirt and kicking it in. There has to be an engineering knowledge of this. Now, if we, if we think of engineering as a discipline, there's a very small number of people in any society, and uh, Steel Tiger in, in the chat here says engineering is fun. You would be the great engineer because you think it's fun. Most people don't think it's fun. Most people want to do something else. So you had to have specializations here. And you had to have probably, just like we have today, disciplines even within the specialization. There had to be people that were more the engineer on how to build a house so it didn't fall on top of people. And how to design a structure that could be built again and again and again and again. And how to repair and maintain that. Where you also had engineers that were more like what we have as a civil engineer. They were more concerned with the infrastructure. And other things that we just can't even know. But yet we had to have people that were specializing in art or specializing in the craft of cutting stone. This is an incredible difficult thing to do. But yet there, the, it had to also be the case for a society like this to exist as long as it did that long ago that most people were also generalists. And I think so if we were trying to mimic this today and take what we can from it and add it to what we have, that we would need to have a very generalized 
knowledge. You know, we, we need a lot of people that are a jack of many trades and a master of some. And I think that actually we do see that in society today, but it gets very, very walled off and very, very specialized. And that's why most of us probably wouldn't make it if we tried to live this way overnight. And you wonder if these people, if, if Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson are, are right in their theory of catastrophe occurring several thousand years before this, with massive flooding, were these people a remnant whose, whose survivors passed down a knowledge to even know how to do this? Where does this come from? Because it doesn't fit, we're back to it, doesn't fit what archaeology says. People start to grow crops. As they start to grow crops, they need to, to, to defend the crops, so then they start to stay put. When they start to stay put, then it's, it's the cart before the horse scenario where now we're building the town to go with the field. This doesn't work here. What does work, if we get off that myopic viewpoint, is that, hey, look at this great resource. There's a river here. Look at all these shellfish, look at all these fish, look at this bayou, look at all these, these lizards and, and alligators, and look at all these resources. Why would we plant anything? Why would we husband anything? Oh, I, why don't we live here? And, and so, to me, I don't think we need one to begat the other. What we need is sufficient resources to support people, and nature has a bounty that exceeds man's ability to produce a bounty. I, I believe that, and I think that's what we've seen here. We also know... And this is a broader view. I'm looking at the other things I've learned as I've been deep diving into this. Even during the time of European contact, even when like the Soto was going on his rampage and killing the shit out of these people and screwing everything up, there were cities that were much larger than this that had a lot of conflict And a lot of intra-city, if you want to call it that, or intra-tribe or intra-nation warfare. And there were other cities that were far more stable, far more peaceful. They didn't have a shitload of human sacrifice going on, etc. And those locations were the ones with the most trade. The people that trade the most, the people that maintained the greatest neutrality, the people that didn't pick a side, the people that didn't make enemies of others, it's not like nobody bothered them. But they were bothered less. And by engaging in trade, they had more. So they had a greater ability to defend themselves, which we'll talk about in a minute going back to Poverty Point. But Poverty Point, again, I, I don't think we can gloss over the extensive trade that this location had. Not only did it support them, it made them friendly with others at a time when there was plenty of conflict. There was actually more conflict later But there wasn't an absence of conflict. But there's, you know, the thing is, we're not really sure about this. But it doesn't look like there's evidence of conflict. The reason we're not sure is there's literally no bodies. We don't know what happened to these people. We don't know where they went. We don't know if they practiced cremation. I have a theory, a, a potential theory. There's parts of the world where you have this floating body of water and somebody dies, you wrap them up and down they go at a time when the American alligator wasn't being hunted into extinction, there probably wouldn't be a lot left between crabs and... You would think they would find something somewhere, but I don't know that it's really been looked for. You're talking about some pretty rugged country. That would be one way they could have disappeared. The acidity level in the soils, if it was natural burials, 
may have just simply decomposed everything. So we can't look and say, oh, look, there's violent death and there's natural death. We don't have that evidence. But it seems like for a society to last a thousand years, and in an egalitarian way, there couldn't have been a massive amount of conflict. Now, I do think that that also has to do with how defensible this location was. So when I listen to archaeologists talk about the way this was laid out, They talk about these mounds, and they say, we really don't know what the purpose of the mounds were. And if you know anything about native culture, you know that most of the time when you see a mound, if you start excavating the mound, inside the mound are the remains of people and other materials. And as society progressed, we even find places where dogs are buried alongside their owners, showing that they had a value of canines as being worthy of being preserved that way in memory but not the mounds at Poverty Point. There's some basketry and some trash and stuff in them that was part of the construction, but basically they're mounds of earth. There's nothing in them. There's nothing in them. So why were they there? And this is like a mystery. Well, I think one is this was a society that cared about art. So you have, if you imagine the place at the time that this existed, When it was all in its splendor, it would have been quite beautiful. The permaculturist in me wants to say, hey, you know what? You've just increased surface area for growing you know, bushes or shrubs or something. But there's no evidence of that. Though I just have to believe that the structure would be more stable if something was growing in it. But I'm, that's total conjecture. I have no idea. But when I look at it, I see a very defensible position. I see a place where... 99% of the bank of that river is very steep. And if you came down that river with a boat and a bunch of warriors and you wanted to invade this place and you were trying to climb up that bank, you just have dudes chunking rocks and spears at you and you're dead. You're just not getting up there. There is a place that looks like it was a landing where boats could easily unload like a ramp. I don't know if we know if that, was, that structure looked like that at the time or if that's erosive. But even if it did, you're back to now you have any water attack, you have a funnel. And if you want to jack some people up in a defensive situation, funnel them into a narrow location and you can just devastate them. Then we all learned that in the movie 300, right? Um, and that is a common tactical situation. And when I look at this and I see the first two mounds that are a little bit lower that are on you know either side of the mega mound, And I look at the Mega Mount, I'm thinking, if you had some people up there, you've got watchtowers. And you've got an incredible defensive position, like if you were overrun, you could retreat up onto it. I don't know if that's the case. Again, I, who, who the hell would know? You can't know. There's no record of it. There's no stories of it. There's only what's there in archaeology. And a, there's a lot of things we don't know. However, we know it was flat-topped. We know it's big enough that a shitload of people could have been up there. And if those people were up there, they would have a massive advantage over any invaded, invading force. And we know that the big one was built in 90 days. Now, I'm sorry. I don't care how much leisure time you have. I think if you're going to take you know, a few thousand people and move 15 million basket loads of dirt in 90 days, something has lit a fire under thy ass. That, again, I'm, I'm back to I'm guessing here. But to me, I think there is something that... Wherever you are, when you're trying to build a sustainable, ongoing, regenerative society, the position must be defensible. 
And I think we should today, switching over to modern times, we need to look at the defensibility beyond physical defensibility. Because if you ever did piss anybody off bad enough at the highest levels, you know, we've already been threatened, you know, with nuclear weapons by our president. So, you know, one cruise missile without, without being nuclear tipped, guys, just conventional weaponry. Defensibility today needs to be looked at differently. How do you create the society so that in this litigious, overly regulated world, it's very hard to touch? And I think falling under the umbrella of religion might be a way. These people have created for themselves a place where certain things are not to be touched. Working with, ironically, working with existing native cultures, like no politician is going to jack with a Native American, period. It isn't going to happen. Because it is not a third rail, it is a 15th rail of politics. There is no winning in that. So I don't know exactly what the answer is, but I do think that we need to develop whatever we develop as communities in a very defensible way. And I think there's a lesson there from Poverty Point. Um, I said this already, but I think so much about building a community someday. And I think so much about, you know, how could we make housing affordable? And the more I look at it, the more I think, what's more affordable than here's the land, here's the material, take the material and build a house. The houses that were built there were basically built, from what I can gather, similar in structure to like you would think of building the frame for a pole barn, and then a thatched roof of some sort, and then a daub and wattle wall with a center hearth and a smoke hole. So that there could be cooking and there could be warmth, and it would also be a, a, a structure that built that way would maintain itself in a lot of ways to stay cool during the heat of a Louisiana summer. Especially when the majority of people probably spent most of their time outside. Your house was probably where you kept your possessions, where you ate your meals with family, and where you slept. It wasn't really where you stayed all day long. You went out and did things. Um, there, was, there is something to that. Rammed earth is probably the number one method of housing construction in the world. If we're going to be sustainable, then we need to build our housing as best we can from on-site materials. I think that's a big lesson here because these people did it. And I would like you to, and, and Steel Tiger saying there's too many assholes for this to be possible now. I think that defeatist language is exactly how you make sure you're never able to do anything even approaching this. And when I say approaching this, I don't mean building a 1,000-year society with 4,000 people in it. I mean anything approaching your own community. That as soon as we start to think, well, they won't let us, or nobody could do it today, there's too many assholes, whatever, as soon as you do that, your mind just goes, it's off. So get rid of that shit, guys. Just honestly, you got to get rid of that shit. Um, back to where I was. Um, there is ways to do this. And it doesn't mean that we must do it this way, or that... We need to limit it. Like if somebody was ever to build a planned community, say you have to build your house this way or what have you. But I think developing as much technology to do as much of it as can be done from on-site materials and maybe thinking more simplistically. Because I don't think that we can't do very simplistic building and still have high technology. I think we can have high technology. I think we can have electricity. I think we can have high-speed Internet. I think we can have computers. I think we can have 
mobile devices. I think we can have sophistication. I don't think one negates the other. I think we can do better today than they did then, but I do think we can learn from what they did. And I think that the, the, the more you can do what you need to provide your base existence with what you have, the better off you are. Um, it also seems that you might be able to do a lot more if you do more with shared resources and communal living. And as soon as you use the word communal, people think communism and socialism and all that, and that's not what I'm talking about. That's not what I'm talking about at all. However, you have to start asking yourself, in a society that we live in, how many things do many of us own that we use once or twice a year, right? And he, Steel Tiger saying he was being funny. It, it's okay, man. Texas lowest comms and, you know, it just, it, it's a good point, though. There is a lot of that defeatist language out there, so we do need to, to break free of it. But how many things do you own that you use two or three times a year? And your neighbor owns one. And the next neighbor owns one. And the guy across the street owns one. And the guy down the, the road owns one. When I was thinking about how to put together an off-grid community, and I thought the reason to do that is not that I'm opposed to the grid. It's because a lot of things that are used to control us by the state, if you go off-grid, go away, especially in certain uh, counties and states, etc. And when you're in an uh, unincorporated area, you're almost unlimited in what you can do if you stay off the grid. As long as you, in, in the case of Texas, as long as you have a valid septic solution, um, you know that that fits for you know either the dwelling or some number of dwellings combined, you're good to go. You can do anything you want. And when I started doing that, I was like, well, you know, people have to do laundry. People, and if you were to create something that more like, well, maybe there's a community laundromat or something like that, and maybe I don't want to do my laundry, and maybe you, you know, you like doing laundry, and now we have inter-community commerce. There's there's so many opportunities like that. Uh, putting in a great big workshop. And then having that workshop, you know, stacked with the tools that are necessary to maintain the facility. And when someone needs one, they go get it. And when they're done with it, they put it back. And as long as you have a way to organize that so things don't disappear, you know, you have a much more efficient system. Think of it a makerspace for the community instead of a makerspace that you drive to. And I, I think that we need to look when doing something like this. Everybody wants to know, well, what do I get? What do I get? Where's How much land do I get? And, and I think, you know, if I lived in a place where the people around me shared the, a core of common ideals and a core of respect for each other, and there were hundreds of acres of community land, how much land do I actually want to maintain around my house? And the answer is not very much. You guys know I do a lot with aquaculture, and I build these ponds in my backyard. I maintain these ponds. And stuff goes wrong, and I have to fix them, and they take a lot of energy. If I have a freaking river running through this community, I'm not doing that. Now, I might figure out how we can divert some water out of the river and back in so we can farm fish, but that's a self-maintaining system. And I can I, grow more fish with that than my family can ever eat. So we need to start using terms like communal as adjectives rather than systems of governance or systems of control. All of us perform communal activities all the time. Right now, I have a certain number of people. We are communally sharing information voluntarily using YouTube and streaming technology. That's a communal activity. 
And when we, when we get together and we do events and everybody pays to come and then an event is provided, there's no way, for instance, when I do my events, I could provide to a couple individuals what I provide to 80. Because having a communal resource, and yeah, I make some money on it, but I don't have to. I have to to justify doing it. But if you're running your life this way, it doesn't necessarily have to be profitable. We could use a structure for this within their system, the beast system, called a co-op. Run for the members, by the members, for the benefit of the members. And take a lot of commerce that would otherwise be taxed, and not all, but remove a great deal of it from the beast system of taxation. And then your outside commerce is what's taxable. Your internal commerce largely is no longer taxable because there's no profit for anybody. If you have an employee, they're going to pay tax on their payroll, kind of like a church or other nonprofit does. There's just a lot of opportunity here. If we understand that using shared resources would be the entire point of building a community, because I see so many people come at community, but they're coming at community as isolationalists. And I'm not sure those two things can go together without some bending toward each other. Just what I see in this. Um, it also, just like I said, it appears that work was done swiftly when needed. There was some way that for whatever reason, I don't know if they decided the sun was going to rise a certain way. We don't know. Because we know about the time it was built. We can't tell you that it was built on this day. But we know it was built in about a 90-day cycle. They built that giant friggin' pyramid. So whether it was because they wanted to celebrate something, because they felt they needed it for defense, because everybody had a collective vision, they all did peyote or some shit, but there's no peyote there, but some sort of hallucinogenic and everybody had a common vision. We have no idea why, but we know that. From the point of go to one of the, the, the marvels of ancient civilization being done was a three-month period. That means there was an ability to mobilize quickly, and yet there was extensive leisure time. And the link I've not heard the archaeologists make there, I think those two things go together. If you have a society whose workload is such that they are absent leisure time, how do you mobilize to get a very important thing done, whatever it is, without having the rest of your society fall apart? We've seen the consequences of shutting a society down. It's ugly and it's going to get worse with what happened with this pandemic, right? It's, it's a horrible thing we've done to the global economy. So how could you have, I mean, this must have taken, uh, the, the, the estimate I heard was somewhere between half to two-thirds working very long, continuous days to build this thing in that period of time, which they're very confident at. And from what I've seen, I think the confidence is, there's a reason for it. I think it makes sense. Double it. Doing 180 days, you still had to mobilize a massive number of people to get this done. The only way you could do that is for extensive leisure time to exist in the society. Now, certainly there would be cycles. There would be a time when there would be more hunting or more fishing done. And in the lull, you could do these things. But overall, if you want a society that can be mobilized quickly to something that's urgent, you have to have the ability to kind of drop what you're doing, or at least for a large portion to drop what they're doing, and go focus on this one thing. And again, I mean, there's a temptation to look at this and say they probably use slave labor, but there's not any evidence of that. If we 
if we decide to believe what it looks like we should here, you had a society that had the time to stop and do something momentous because for one reason or another they wanted to, which must mean then that they had plenty of time for sports and leisure and culture. There's clearly evidence of, like, sports fields here. They, they had games, that they played games, that they had entertainment. The culture had art. It had science, engineering. It had astronomy. And I think that if you're going to build a community and it's going to be strong, you need those things today as much as ever. We've, we've decided that we don't really need engineering and we don't really need architects because those are four higher services. So if I need a house built, I know, no matter what, now it's a little harder than normal because short supply and demand, but overall, if I have money and I want a house, I can probably make a phone call, a single phone call, set a ball in motion, and a house eventually will appear at this location if I have control over it. And I don't have to have any architectural knowledge. I don't have to have any engineering knowledge. I don't have to have any electrical knowledge. I don't have to have any knowledge of anything for this thing to appear. But I think if you're going to build a sustainable community and you truly mean the word for what it's supposed to mean, that you have to have these various levels of culture and expertise together. You need diversity and through diversity strength. And I don't mean that in some sort of wokeism way. There is strength in diversity. This is why if we look at invasive species... We have thousands of so-called invasive species on the North American continent that do no real big net negative. But you bring a single invasive species into a simple ecology like an island, and it can wreck the place. And that's because it lacked diversity. So through lacking diversity, it lacked resiliency and non-brittleness. So I don't know about you, but if I'm going to ever build a community, I want it to be incredibly non-brittle. And so it has to have a diverse array. And I think TSP is a community. As a virtual community, is that already? There's almost nothing that I ever need to know that when I put out that I need to know this thing, there isn't several emails in my box the next day that not just address it, but do so well or say, here's how to find out, like solid, concrete knowledge. So what we actually need to look at here is cultural and experiential and educational capital built into these communities. That's what that really was. And here's the big thing. As much as I've talked about this, it wasn't the only one. It was not the only one. There were more. There are none as large that we know of. So what, what the archaeology record says is this was the biggest one, this was the most successful one, da-da. You don't know that. You don't know that. You could have had one of these built on, instead of this bayou, the Mississippi River, it could have had a 500-year flood event, and it could have been Noah's Ark down into the freaking Gulf of Mexico, and 3,000, 4,000 years later, you wouldn't see Jack Diddley crap. But we know there were others that were smaller, that were part of a greater civilization. And I think that's a lesson as well. I think if you're ever going to build a successful community, starting with one and probably start smart starting smaller than this one would be a good idea. So that's the other thing I want you to think of. I don't think this was the first one. I don't think this was the first one. Just like I don't think when we look at where I started with Galepi, Galepi Tepe in Turkey, 
people are talking about this is the first ever megalithic structure ever built. And you can go into the you know hunter-gatherer agriculture argument all you want there. I just look at it and I go, really? So the first time they ever did it, they built the biggest one we've ever found. So that's like saying like, if you if you went further into the future, and you came back and did archaeology here, and you found a 2020 Ferrari. And it was the only car you ever found. You'd say, this was the first time humans built cars. That we started with a Ferrari. And I, when I look at the incredible nature of this community, it cannot have been the first thing like this built because it's a masterpiece. And you, maybe you can have a masterpiece be the first work by an individual. You have one of these gifted people. You have a Shakespeare. You have a, a Mozart. You have a Beethoven. You have a Michelangelo. And maybe the first time they ever touch clay, they make a masterpiece. Or the first time they ever pen music, they make a masterpiece. Or pen a poem, they make a masterpiece. You can have that. You do not get a collectively built masterpiece on the first go of something. This was something that had to have come from some other plant, some other place, some other knowledge. And that's why I'm going back to it in the first place, because I think that if we're going to build something today that has any type of true sustainability in it, we cannot discard the lessons of the past. We have to build on what we have had succeed in the past. We can't start from zero. And when I look at so much of the sustainable community, the regenerative community, the permaculture community world, all of these places where people want to build something like this and make something like this work, everything they talk about seems to be the things that we know from the past 50 years. And we have tens of thousands of years of human culture that we're ignoring. And we have a time, in fact we have thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of years. We really have no idea how old the first cultures really were. We do not know this. We pretend to know that which we don't know. But if it's 10,000 years, if it's 20, if it's 50, these people did what we claim we want to know how to do, and we ignore their lessons. That's why I've dug so deep into this, and I will be coming to you in the future with more things like it. So again, that wraps up uh, everything for, for today on that subject. I just find all of this stuff fascinating. I've probably been driving my wife nuts watching this, uh, this, this course. But again, I've been uploading the videos to my Odyssey channel. There's a link to all of the ones that I've uploaded. There's 24 lessons in this. And some of it does dig into minutiae as it goes later and later in the course. But the first, like, eight are amazing. And the sixth one is the one on Poverty Point. It's the one that was the most fascinating to me. And uh, those are the, the first six are uploaded. Uh, there's a link in the show notes today where you can see the ones that are already uploaded. And if you use that link, as more get made, they'll continue to show up there. It's under a tag. That's how I have it uh, linked. And I have a link to the specific episode that I'm talking about. I'd love your feedback on this. And again, I will be digging deeper into what we can learn from ancient civilizations through different angles into the future. Because I really mean what I said. I, I don't think we can claim that we want to learn how to survive in the present and into the future while we ignore the past. 
And I think that one of the things that makes history interesting is to not focus so much on how we got here, but to focus more on how people actually lived. Some of the the the, the, the most entertaining uh, historical series, you know, dramas that I've ever watched, where they make a drama out of a historical time period, I get more out of trying to figure out exactly what was life like for these people. How did they live? How did they get stuff? How did they defend themselves, etc.? We could all talk about great battles all we want, but those are very isolated moments in history. Day-to-day living is what I find incredibly, incredibly interesting. I hope you did too. I hope maybe in some way I made history, for those of you that aren't really in love with history, I made it come alive for you a little bit today. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. And uh, let me remind you, if you like the show and the work that we do, you can always help us out by doing your online shopping. Where? tspaz.com. And I have a piece of modern technology today for you. And it's a piece of modern technology that primarily exists to maintain other modern technology. I had this for you about a month and a half ago, I think. It's made by a company called X-Power. It's the A2 Series Multipurpose Powered Air Duster. And this is a product that blows. It blows, but not in a bad way. It blows in a good way. It blows really hard, really fast. And the main purpose of this device is to clean out the electronics of computers. But it also works to clean out a lot of other things. One guy talked about detailing his motorcycle with it. Another guy talked about detailing cars with it. I have used it in my wood shop uh, when I'm getting done with a project. Just to, I just blow everything off the bench, and then I sweep the floor instead of trying to pick it all up. It just works a lot better. Um, it also would inflate inflatable devices and things like that. But the main reason I got it is, you know, every once in a while I take open up my computers and I blow all the electronics out. You, you, you don't do that? You don't? You should. You know why? Because heat is the enemy. It is the cancer of electronics. And when you don't blow your electronics out, all the little heat sinks in there get clogged up with dirt. And if you ever hear your computer doing this, or, or making any kind of sound that's not typical for it, it's unhappy. It's too hot. You need this thing. And what most people use for this is canned air. Canned air is stupid. It's not sustainable. It's a can full of air with a straw that doesn't blow anywhere near as hard as this thing does. And when it's done, you throw away this great big honking hunk of metal that took a lot of energy to make and buy another one. And they never even last. You never even get all the air out of the can. You know what canned air was good for? A good gaffe in the movie Spaceballs. That was it. Otherwise, canned air is stupid. You want one of these instead. This is one of those things you would think there's plenty of options. There are. Most of them don't blow. They suck. And I mean that in the way it sounds. They suck. They went from suck to blow or blow to suck or whatever was in the movie. But anyway, if you want the best that I could find, you want the one by X-Power. But remember, no matter what you buy, you always help support us no matter what it is, as long as you start your online shopping at tspaz.com. Also remember, you should become a member of the Member Support Brigade. If you got a lot of value out of today's show, if you think, you know what, that was worth a couple bucks, how about 18 cents an episode? If you think the show's worth 18 cents an episode, join the Member Support Brigade, then use all the discounts that I have for you. Know that you're supporting the show, so we'll always be here for you. As long as I breathe and live, I hope to be doing the Survival Podcast. Maybe at some point it won't be five shows a week, even though I'm down to four new shows in the recap. Like, I'm still putting out five shows a week for you guys after 13 years. Maybe there'll come a time when I'm an really old man, I'm like, eh, this is Jack Spearco, and maybe I'm doing a couple. 
But as long as the heart beats, I want to be teaching, I want to be educating. And the way I do that is with your financial support. But I'm not PBS, guys. I don't want donations. When I first started this, I actually had people send me donations. I sent the money back. I didn't want it. I wanted value for value. That's why I built the MSB. Use the discounts. Get your money back at a profit. And then that you have, you know what you have? A sustainable way to support the show. It doesn't actually cost you money if you use the benefits. Learn more at the survivalpodcast.com slash members. Military and law enforcement, first responders, Peace Corps. All of you qualify for a service discount. Email me before, not after you join. TSPC in the subject line and just tell me about your service. One sentence. I don't need ID cards. I don't need proof. If you're going to lie about that, you're going to lie about it. What am I going to do? I don't have time to research your life. I've done this on the honor system, and I have plenty of members that use the discount, plenty that don't. I just think this is a very honorable community, and I can trust it. That's I've done business on trust and handshakes. This is something you guys need to know, actually. How much of this whole company's run on trust and handshakes? And I mean sometimes virtual handshakes over the Internet. Do you know I don't require of my supporting vendors for MSB a contract? I don't have a contract. If they want to quit the day after they start, they can. Most stick around. Why? It works for them. I don't have a contract with my advertisers. I don't have a contract with anybody other than a verbal agreement. I do business on a handshake, and I do business on a handshake with my listeners. I've done it for 13 years, and I see no reason to change. With that, let's talk about our song of the day today. Um, this is actually a really interesting, again, synchronicity coming up with the song for today, matching the subject in a way. This song is by Chris Stapleton, and it's called Starting Over. And it's basically a song about being kind of fed up and a guy wants to pick up with his woman and just go somewhere else and start over. There's something about these societies that we were talking about today. Where did, where did these people go? It really looks like in many instances, in many of these civilizations that I've been studying, they weren't destroyed. They ran their course. People left. They weren't gone. They started over with something new somewhere else. And I think that when we look at history, we look at human lifetimes, and we condense the two, and we look at them kind of in scale to each other, there's a lot of that. I think there's a lot of place in our life for starting over. But one of the reasons I'm always so hot on you guys, when you're 18, starting over, hell, you didn't even get started yet. When you're 30, you can start over. You're 40, 50, you can start. There is a point in your life that the older you get, the more of the dash you've burned, the harder it is to start over. And that's why we need to be making the most of our lives, the most of building our liberty, the most of building our freedom every single day. And with that, it's been Jack Spirico with another episode of the Survival Podcast.
Can't be my folly. 